Good morning, Aletheia Church. How are you guys doing? Oh, man, that was pathetic. Good morning, Aletheia Church. How are you? Okay, thank you. <laughs> um, happy Super Bowl Sunday. How many of you guys are excited about the Super Bowl tonight? Like five hands went up. Not a football crowd in here. So... Um, as you can see, for those of you guys that are making fun of me, this is not a Florida State shirt before I get booed and hissed, um, although it is a Redskins shirt, so it's potentially um, more embarrassing. Um, but being as how my favorite NFL franchise will likely not make the Super Bowl again in my lifetime, I wear a shirt for them every year just to remind myself of why I'm stupid for cheering for that team. Um, who's going to win tonight? Uh, show of hands, 49ers. Okay, Chiefs. I think the Chiefs have it. Sorry, sorry, 49er fans. So commercials, yeah, commercials. Yeah, there we go. Food, yeah, ah, there we go. The real winner is all of us because we eat, right? Okay. <laughs> so uh, glad to have you guys here this morning. I promise that's the last of the football references. Um, if you have a Bible, go ahead and feel free to open it up to Acts chapter 9. Um, that is the text that we are going to be looking at this morning. Uh, and we have actually been studying the book of Acts as a church since, um, since August. Um, that's what we do here at Aletheia Church. We study books of the Bible. We go verse by verse. We go through them. Uh, we study them here on Sunday mornings together. Uh, we study them throughout the week together um, in gospel community uh, in an effort to encourage one another and build one another up. Uh, we want you guys to know God's word really, really well. Uh, and so in order to do that, um, we, we are passionate about studying books of the Bible together because we believe one of the primary ways um, God will transform you and use you for the glory of his kingdom will be uh, that he uh, uses his word right, to renew your mind and transform you. And so... Um, if this is one of your first Sundays with us or um, you haven't gotten one yet, we have scripture journals that contain the entire book of Acts. And then on one side is the word of God and on the other side is just some blank pages where you could take notes. So if you want one, feel free to raise your hand. We've got some people here that will hand one out to you. Just raise your hand. I promise that's all you're getting. We would love to give you one. Uh, it's a free gift to you. And if you do not have a Bible and you want a Bible back at the welcome table, we would love to give you a Bible as well. Free of charge, no questions asked. Uh, we just really love God's word here, and we want it to be in your hands. And so, um, as we've been taking our time looking uh, at the book of Acts, and more specifically right now, Acts chapter 9, um, we, we've really moved slowly, probably even at a slower pace than we did for the rest of uh, the book of Acts. We've really slowly worked our way through chapter 9, uh, because it is one of the most powerful narratives in all of the Bible. And it's the story of this guy by the name of Saul, who's from a place called Tarsus. Um, and if you don't know anything about him, what we've seen uh, up, up until this point in the book of Acts is that Saul uh, was a, a persecutor of the early church. He was a Pharisee. He was one of the religious leaders. Um, he actually was one of the ones that had Stephen killed, one of the first martyrs in all of Scripture. Uh, on his way to arrest and persecute more Christians in Damascus, uh, Jesus, the resurrected Christ, shows up, blinds him, and tells him to go into Damascus and wait for few, uh, further instructions. 
And so, as we saw last week, uh, then Jesus shows up in a vision to this guy by the name of Ananias. He goes into Damascus, uh, excuse me, into this house where uh, Paul is staying. Uh, Ananias heals him. Uh, Paul is transformed in, in that moment, believes and trusts in Jesus, has his life completely transformed, and is baptized. And so, what, what we have talked about the last two weeks, right, is one, that first week, Pastor Daniel did a great job of just laying out for us that we can see in Saul's life, right, that God empowers the church, us, right, to reach even the most unlikely of converts, that no one is beyond God's saving grace, right, because if God can save, right, one of the most uh, vile and despicable human beings uh, that the church had ever seen, right, here in Acts chapter 9, that he can save anyone, that God saves who he wants, when he wants, where he wants, and that we can boldly witness to the good news of Jesus as the church because God is able to reach anyone. And then last week, what we saw is that not only does God empower us to reach the most unlikely of converts, but he also empowers us to be transformed and to see other lives transformed for the glory of Jesus Christ. And we saw last week that as Ananias lays his hands on Saul, it says that the scales fell from his eyes and that he could see again. And what we said there is that... Uh, in that Saul was transformed, he believes in Jesus, he's baptized, and he goes from hating Christians and wanting them murdered to being a Christian, right? That is like the ultimate transformation someone could make, right? From hating Christians and actually having them put to death to being one himself. And so really, if you look at it, the uh, two weeks ago, last week, and then this morning, we've been focusing on this story of the life of and conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And that first week was Saul's uh, story pre-conversion and meeting with Jesus. Last week was Paul's story during that conversion and that transformation. And then this morning, what we are going to see is Saul's life after that transformation takes place. And to put it another way, what we're going to see is Saul began to testify to what Jesus has done in his life, right? To maybe even put it another way to say, we're going to see Saul's testimony. We're going to see the beginning of Saul's testimony as to why he is now a follower of Jesus. And, and what I want to do is I want to take a second and just share this with you because the title of my sermon this morning is Empowered to Have a Testimony, right? If you are a follower of Jesus here this morning, you have a testimony, you do. You have a testimony of what Jesus has done in your life. And I think what's really interesting, when I first uh, began to follow Jesus uh, when I was a, a sophomore in college, I had a hard time differentiating between this idea of uh, telling somebody my story and it being a testimony and not being a biography. Right, does anybody in here have like, like a history buff, lo loves to read biographies about people? Yeah, like four of you. The rest of you guys, you guys are wasted. Every time, like, I, 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 at Christmas time, I never know what I want, I want for Christmas. And so oftentimes I'll just ask for more books because, you know, why not read more? Right? And I often ask for biographies, and my wife are like, why would you want to read about old dead people? And I'm like, right? It's like, it's fascinating. Like, I have these, like, huge biographies on the presidents, and she's always like, that is literally the most boring thing any human being could choose to do on this planet is to spend their time reading about 200-year-old dead presidents. Love it, right? 
But here, here's the interesting thing, right? Those books are biographies, and, and their, their books are totally centered around their lives and focusing in on them. That's what a biography does. It gives you the, the factual information of what occurred in someone's life, uh, what they experienced, what they did, and the impact they left on us. The reality is, though, is a testimony is way different than that. Right? A testimony gives us all the biographical information that we may need about somebody, but the point of it is not to bring attention to, to the person in the story. It's actually to testify to something else. Right? We get that word testimony from the Latin word testis, which means to witness. Right? So when I say that, that Paul has a testimony and that if you are a follower of Jesus, you have a testimony, what I am saying is your story the, the biographical information in that story is not about you, but it's being used to witness to what Jesus Christ has done in your life and why he's worthy of being followed and why others would follow him as well. Okay. And that is the difference that we see in these things. And so as we look then this morning, right, we're going to see that Paul's life from here on out, pretty much the entire book of Acts from here on out is going to be following this guy Paul around for the most part, whose name is still Saul right now. We'll see that name change a little later, but we're going to see him right, witness to what happened on the road to Damascus and how Jesus radically changed his life. And while biographies seek to be loyal to the person they are written about, Paul's testimony seeks to do one thing. Talk about his own transformation and why Jesus is worthy of our worship. So I, I need to get this out of the way. I'm indebted to Mark Driscoll for some of this sermon, if any of you guys are familiar with him, because uh, he has uh, asked a bunch of questions of this text that really, really impacted me. Uh, but what, what we're going to see this morning as we process through um, th this story of Saul's transformation and testimony is what I believe are four key questions that we should be asking of ourselves of how Jesus might have transformed our lives and how we can share that with those around us, right? So here are the four things that I kind of want you guys to see this morning, right? right? What was your life like before you came to know Jesus? How did your view of Jesus change after you came to know him? What has your life looked like since following Jesus, and why do you still follow him? You're going to see all four, right, of those questions answered in our text this morning, right? All four of those questions are going to be answered by what we see uh, Saul experience here in these 11 verses, right? So let me, let's start with just answering that first question, right? What, what was your life before? like before believing in Jesus, right? What did Saul's life look like? And I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this because we have exhaustively discussed this topic for the last couple of weeks, right? But he was a Pharisee, a privileged Roman citizen. He was educated. He had money. Uh, he was a bounty hunter, right? All these different things we see about him. He was a hater of Jesus. He hated Christians, right? We see that he had a great zeal for God, and that zeal led to his uh, decision to persecute the church that the way that we did. It's, it's well known. Um, throw up Galatians chapter 1 for me. This is Saul's own description of himself, right, to, to, to the churches of Galatia. Like, look, look at what he says starting in verse 13. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, 
how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. Among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Right, so he shares with us right there in Galatians a little bit of his story, right? a little bit of his testimony of who was, who was Saul of Tarsus before that moment in, on, on the road to Damascus where Jesus shows up, yells at him, <laughs> blinds him, and sends him into Damascus. Right? What, what was his life like? And his, what does he say? He's like, you guys have heard of it. You guys know all about my former life in Judaism. You know that I persecuted the church violently. You knew that I was advancing in Jewish life and was farther ahead than many of my own age. You, you know all those things about it. You know how smart I was. You know how talented I was. You know what a leader I was. I want you to think about this because think about what Saul is communicating there in those two verses to all of us. Maybe to ask it a different way, right? What is Paul telling us about who was the center of his life before Jesus? Himself. Now, here's the interesting thing, right? If I told you to ask yourself that question, who was the center of your life? Right? We might answer all sorts of different things. We might even answer God. I think Saul would have probably said the same thing, right? Oh, God's the center of my life, right? I'm advancing in Judaism. I'm doing all of these things. But if you look at his life, right, think about all the things he, th- he, he, he mentions there. It seems pretty clear that the center of Saul's life is Saul. He only cares about himself. He's only inter- interested in advancing his agenda so that he can continue to advance within the Jewish ranks. He goes to great lengths to make much of himself and show how superior he is to everyone around him. Right? He is, in reality, communicating to us, hey, the God of this universe is me. Before he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, the God of Saul's life was not the God of the Bible, was not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even though he probably would have professed it to be so. The God of Saul's life was Saul. And the way that he worshipped himself was within the confines of the Jewish religious system. Not a true and sincere love and worship of God. See, Paul seems good, at least by Jewish standards, but if you follow his life. And friends, let me, let me, church, let me just say this to you guys, right? And this is one of the biggest things I've seen since, since I have moved from the mid-Atlantic, the edge of the northeast to the south. Paul's life mimics the life of a lot of people I come across here in the south. Because the issue with religion apart from Jesus The issue with good deeds apart from Jesus is that even in our zeal and our acts of love, they're marked not by sincere service and love and making much of God, but a desire to puff up self and worship self. The number of students I meet on campus, right, every one of you guys, like I... I, one of the things I love about University of Florida students is I, I ask you what you want to do, and every single one of you start basically telling me what way you want to change the world by yourself. And I was like, man, you guys are amazing. Like, if you ask me what I want to do, it's like graduate, <laughs> eat, you know, 
breathe? Like just like the most simple of answers. Then I get down here and everyone's like, you know, run a country, change the medical system, uh, you know, uh, maybe redesign the Federal Reserve. You know, just, you know, basic, you know, things you want to do on a Tuesday afternoon. And, and I love it, right, because you guys are passionate, you're, you're committed, and you're all the same, and you get here, and, you know, you were in your high school, and you were, like, the best person in your high school, and you get here, and you're one of 50,000 people who are exactly like you. And I start asking you these questions, and you're, and you, and you're like, you're quick, like, I want, I want to be the best nurse the world has ever seen, or I want to be the doctor that discovers the cure for cancer. You just throw all this stuff out, and I'm like, and then you start asking why. And man, those, those answers are interesting. But almost all of them are self-centered. And it's fascinating to me because it masquerades itself as a sincere love for others, but it's self-serving. How many of you guys volunteered in high school consistently, not because of a sincere desire to volunteer and serve your community, because you wanted something on your resume that looked good when you applied to the university? few hands went up, the rest of you. I'm like, by the way, I can see all of your faces because I don't look at my notes. Some of you guys are like, <laughs> just raise your hand. You're in good company. Everyone does that, right? Because I would submit to you that pre-coming to Christ, everyone's God is themselves. We're no different than Saul. It might look a little bit different. It might masquerade a little bit differently. The symptoms might be a little bit different. But our lives are often masked by a love of self and a worship of self. I mean, think about what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 64, right? This is what, this is what he says in regards to our good works apart from God. This is super encouraging. Just be ready. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all, all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Just so you guys know, I'm just going to be honest with you guys. That word is actually translated a menstrual garment. That's the Hebrew word for a menstrual garment. So what Isaiah is saying here is your good deeds apart from God mean no more to God than a dirty menstrual rag. Anybody encouraged yet? He goes on to say this. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind, take us away. A life disconnected and apart from God, even in our righteous works, are like a polluted garment. And so one of the things we need to understand, if, if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning or not, you need to answer this question. Who is at the center of my life? Until you answer that question honestly and introspectively, life is going to be chaotic. Like Saul, you may have zeal, you may have passion, but lacking the proper foundation, it leads to a life that is inward, self-serving, and, and motivated by self-worship. But what you're going to see in the life of Saul is that when God moves to the center, he becomes an anchor driving our actions and our lives to real purpose. That the motivating factor behind these things leads to us knowing who we really are and what we want to do. 
leads to us knowing why we're here in the first place. Leads to us being able to declare the glory of God to those around us and what he's done. Right? And so we, we've seen up until this point, right, that first kind of question in Paul's testimony, right, is what was his life before believing in Jesus, right? Which the, the reality is, is probably worse than most of us in this room, right? His, his was all the way crazy. Ours is just mostly crazy, right? But then we get to this next question, right? After that moment, right? So for Saul recorded in Acts chapter 9, after that moment where there is major heart change, right? And we begin to trust and know who Jesus Christ really is. How does our view of Jesus change? And I want to focus on two things that Luke shares with us here in Acts 9, right? Uh, How we know how Saul's view of Jesus has changed radically from the way it was before. Look at verses 20 through 22 with me. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. I want to focus on, in those verses, there's two titles used to describe Jesus there that will give you all you need to know about what Saul thought about Jesus now at this point. The first one is in verse 20, right, where he calls Jesus the Son of God, and the second one is in verse 22 when he says Jesus is the Christ. These are key statements from Saul because they declare what he believes and they also proclaim what he believes others should believe about Jesus as well. Right? That first one, that first title, Son of God. Turn over to John chapter 10 with me if you have your Bible. If not, we'll throw it up on the screen for you. Did you know that Jesus claimed to be God's Son? Like He actually claimed to be the Son of God. Look at, look at what he says here in verse 25. The Jews are questioning him outside of the colonnade of Solomon, and they're asking, hey, are you really the Messiah? Are you really the Christ? And in verse 25, he says, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. It's like, look, I already answered this question for you. (laughs) Why do you keep asking me? (laughs) This has been covered over and over again. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. He's like, look, you don't even need to ask the question. Just look at what I'm doing. It tells you all you need to know. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. And listen to this. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And then look at this last line. I and the Father are one. And then you read verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Let me just tell you something. Jesus is claiming to be God here. 
Right? Jews didn't just pick up stones for the fun of it and throw them at people. Right? They're not five-year-old kids. They act like them sometimes, but they're not. Right? They stoned people who committed blasphemy, and blasphemy was claiming to be God when you, in fact, were not God. Therefore, Jesus is making a claim that everyone around him clearly understands. Hey, just want to let you guys know, God's my father and I'm his son and we are the same essence. We're one and the same. I'm God. For those of you guys that are into uh, apologetics or whatever else, one of my favorite apologetic arguments is C.S. Lewis's Liar, Lunatic, or Lord. It's one of my absolute favorites because, because and guys, for those of you guys that are college students, a lot of your friends love to have this absolutely horrifically terrible view of Jesus that makes no logical sense whatsoever. And some of you in here this morning might be holding it. Ah, I think Jesus was a good religious teacher. Jesus did not leave us with that option on what to draw. Uh, Jesus did not leave us with that option as a conclusion we could draw about his life. He did not give us that option. Right? Someone who says the things that Jesus said did not leave us the ability to draw the conclusion, hey, I think Jesus was a pretty good dude who, who like, did some good things, but that was about it. Right? Someone who claims to be a good person does good things and is like, hey, I just want you to know that I'm doing these good things. They don't say, hey, I'm the God of the universe. Worship me. Follow me. Give up everything you have to follow me. They don't say strange things later on in the Gospels like, hey, drink my blood and eat my flesh, which is given for you. But they don't say the types of things Jesus said. And so C.S. Lewis says, look, this is one of the most like, crazy inventions that the human mind has ever come up with, that Jesus was just a good religious moral teacher. He has not given us that option. He's either a liar, which doesn't make him a good person, because he's literally led millions and millions of people astray over the course of the last 2,000 years, telling them that he was God and should be followed when he's not, which if Jesus isn't really God, why are we here? He isn't a good person. He lied to everyone. If he's not a liar, then he truly believed that he was God, but he wasn't, which would make him crazy and a lunatic, which would still not make him worthy of being followed. Or he's exactly what he says he is in John chapter 10. I and the Father are one. And you can know that I and the Father are one because of my works. Look at them. Guys, Jesus has not left us any other options. He's either the God of the universe, worthy of our worship and our affections, bowing down to him as Lord and Savior, or he's not. There is no third option. There is no third way. And as you see from Saul's life before Damascus, he understood that. Jesus is a liar and a blasphemer, and anyone that claims to follow him is a liar and a blasphemer as well, and I am going to eradicate Christians. And then what do we see? He goes from persecuting followers of Jesus for believing this to proclaiming the very same thing to be true. Because if Jesus is God's son, it radically changes including the life of Saul. Not only does he call Jesus the son of God, but then there at the end, Luke says that he was testifying to him as the Christ. That word Christ is the Greek word 
for Messiah or anointed one. And this would have been well known amongst the Jews that God had promised a Messiah to his people to come and save them. In John 10, Jesus even testifies to this fact because that's the very question they were asking him. He talks about God being his father. He says, I've already testified to you that I am the Christ and I and the Father are one, that he is God's appointed one. And if you ever want to spend a couple of weeks in study, Jesus fulfills around 400 Old Testament prophecies about who the Messiah would be perfectly. It's fascinating. When I was preparing for this sermon, I was like, I'm going to put some of these in there. And there were so many, I was like, I don't even know which one to pick. I'm just going to tell you guys to study it on your own instead. It's amazing, right? The picture that is given of the Messiah in the Old Testament, how beautifully Jesus fits that picture. If you want to just look at one, read Isaiah 52 and 53 when you get home today. Those two chapters alone are more than enough. And as Jesus' life matches these promises, it reveals to us that he is who he said he was, that he's God's son in the flesh, worthy of our lives being given to him for his honor and his glory. And some of you guys may be sitting there and be like, why does this matter? <laughs> what, what, like, does it, really, does it really matter if we use this proper language surrounding Jesus, like Lord and, and Christ and God's son? And I would just say this, if God is creator and wants our worship, and wants us to worship him as he intended, then yes, it does matter, and it matters deeply. Let me, let me share a quick story with you guys. A couple years ago, some of you guys may know, this church is right around seven years old. We'll celebrate our seventh birthday in March, and yeah, we're a second grader, and, <laughs> and one of the things that's, that, that was fascinating about one of those early days is um, like we, we, we met in downtown Gainesville at the Hippodrome Theater. And it was a pretty cool place to do church when you didn't have any kids around. But once people started having kids, it was like the worst place ever to do church because your kids were like three floors separated from you and there's no way to get down there. And, you know, it was just terrible. And parents would come and be like, yeah, this is the worst. We're not coming back. We're never going to come back here again. I'm surprised my kids lived. Right. And we just say, okay, like, so we, you know, we had to find a new place to meet uh, because you guys love your kids and want us to take care of them, which, I mean, I have kids too. I like that as well. But one of the things that was fascinating is like the people we would meet in downtown Gainesville that would show up at that church. And I remember one particular Sunday, a couple of the Krishna uh, house people showed up at our church, you know, and they're in their, their garb and whatever else that they're wearing. And, and one of them was like this older guy who clearly like been involved with the Krishna movement for some guy. And then, you know, pardon me, just for, like, for here for a minute. And if he ever sees this, I just feel like I need to be honest so you can see this on the YouTube video, buddy, if you're ever watching this. But some punk kid who literally just converted to Krishna was with him, right? And he didn't really know what he was talking about, but he tried. And so he, he comes in, and, and I, you know, for those of you guys that have met me, I'm like a ball of energy on Sunday mornings. Just like, turn that, crank the volume all the way up to 11, let's go. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited you're here. I'm excited about God. I'm excited about what God's doing. So I'm just like, hey, guys, what's up? Like, what's going on? And you could tell they're kind of weirded out. They're like, can't you see we're Krishna? It's like, yeah, let's talk about Jesus. You know, so I'm sitting there talking about him, and like we're, we're talking about what they believe, whatever else. And finally, like the, the young guy in all of his infinite wisdom just looks at me and goes, you know, like, I think we're actually on the same page. I was like, dude, tell me all about it. Like, enlighten me. He's like, yeah, like, 
we both love God and like we want to worship him and honor him with our lives and do our things. And like, you know know what's interesting is really the only, when you boil it down, it's kind of like this, right? And you can just see, he's like, I've set you up, right? I've backed you into a corner. I mean, this is what he says to me. It's kind of like if you and I had a job and we want to honor our boss, and you call the boss Steve, and I call the boss John, and his name's Dave. But the reality is, is we're still trying to honor our boss, so we're all on the same page. And he just like has this like look on his face like, dude, I have destroyed you. Universalism is for everyone. And I'm like, I, I sit there and think for a second, and then I look at him like, you've never had a job, have you? Could you imagine, by the way, like that being the response? Like, I didn't go into some huge apologetic. I'm like, you've never had a job, have you? And I knew the answer because he was like 17. The answer was no. I was like, you've never had a job, have you? He's like, well, you know. I was like, dude, let me tell you something. That sounds good in theory. If you have a boss, guess what your boss wants to be called? By his name. <laughs> and if you don't call him by his name, guess what he's going to tell you? Call me by my name or you're fired. (laughs) If a boss does that, how much more might the God of the universe care about that? How much more might the God of the universe say, hey, I've, I've revealed myself to you. You don't get to pick and choose about what you want to believe about me. You're not God. Just like I'm not the boss and I don't get to decide what my boss is, does, and what I call him. And so as I'm sitting there talking to this guy, I'm like, dude, I'm going to be honest with you. What you say sounds really good, but it's just not true. And until you understand what God has revealed about himself to us, you will live in this state of confusion. Paul's life was completely changed. And he didn't move into some weird, ambiguous territory of Jesus being a good teacher or a moral compass that we could follow. No, he said, Jesus was God's son in the flesh and the promised Messiah who is worthy of our worship and my life has been transformed and I'm going to testify to that fact. You can try to stop me, but with my dying breath, that's what I'm going to be saying. And any true testimony might have biographical information in it, but it testifies to who Jesus really is and was. And so we see so far, right, we've seen what Saul was like pre-conversion. We've seen what Saul now believes to be true about Jesus. And then we ask this third question, what has his life looked like since following Jesus? And as Charlotte read for us earlier, right, even in in about these seven or eight verses here where he starts revealing some of this, we see all all of these things that highlight major differences in Saul's life pre-Damascus and post-Damascus. One, he spends his time proving that Jesus is the Messiah. He goes from arresting people for talking about that to trying to do it himself in verse 22. In verses 23 and through 25, he goes from hunting Christians to being hunted himself. He went from being a bounty hunter to being a bounty. 
right? He goes from being this prominent guy in Jewish society to being lowered out of Damascus in a basket in hiding to keep him alive. Pretty humbling, right? He, he, suffer, he suffers and is rejected by the disciples. By the way, I don't blame them. He was trying to kill them. Do you imagine, like, getting a call from someone like, hey, I'm going to kill you and your entire gospel community, and then they show up the next week and like, hey, can I come in and hang out with you guys? I'm a Christian now. <laughs> That's cool. Go to Daniel's group. They meet on Wednesday. <laughs> We're canceled tonight. Like, don't blame them at all for being a little weary, right, of trusting this guy. So he's given up everything. He's following Jesus now. And the church is like, dude, we, we don't know. We don't know what to make of you. Luckily, there's this awesome guy named Barnabas, right, whose name means encouragement. Takes him in, teaches him, right? And in that encouragement, as Barnabas meets with him and encourages him, he starts preaching even more boldly in the name of Jesus, right? He just grows even more fervent in his love for Jesus. Then you get to verse 30, and he's fleeing persecution in Jerusalem yet again. Paul's life drastically changes, and everyone saw it. And to be honest, most of us would say, from like a worldly perspective, it doesn't change in a good way. He goes from prominence and privilege to marginal, being marginalized. He goes from power to powerless. He goes from persecutor to persecuted. He suffers for the sake of Jesus. And the more he suffers, the more he resolves to witness to the glory of Jesus Christ. And just as an aside, I always love reading these verses right here because what happens to Saul is exactly what Jesus told Ananias would happen to Saul in verse 16 of Acts chapter 9. Yeah, he's going to find out how much he has to suffer for my name. Just be ready. Go heal him because he's getting ready to be punished for my name's sake. How has your life changed? Has it been transformed? Have you seen sin go from dominating your life and enslaving you to experiencing the freedom and joy that comes from following God? Have you seen your life be transformed from love of self and only self to love of God and love of others? I love the camp I used to to be a counselor at uh, up in Pennsylvania. And they just had this motto. And you just said, I'm third. Right? And so all you guys love, y'all, it, by the way, it drives me crazy that, that ministry, I am second. Right? It's not technically biblically correct. Right? But the motto at the camp used to be, I'm third. God first, other second, I'm third. Right? Saul's life goes from Saul first, God second, others third. To God first, other second, Saul third. Look at the transformation that takes place in his life. Have you experienced that same transformation? Maybe living for Jesus, you've experienced suffering like Saul. Rejection of friends or family, loss of opportunities. 
Guys, let me just tell you something. Those are common experiences in the, life, in the life of a follower of Jesus. I know that here in the U.S., we tend to do everything we possibly can to make life as comfortable as it possibly can be. That is not what Jesus promises us. But if we want to testify to the glory of God, we can be prepared to suffer because Jesus suffered, we can. Because suffering makes much of Jesus. I'm reminded of um, a sermon I heard years and years ago by John Piper. And he, he, you know, there used to be, the, they still do sermon jams, pop culture people tell me. Is that still a thing? I'm, I'm getting no, so you guys have no idea what I'm talking about, right? For those of you guys that are like over the age of 20, you might know what I'm saying. Right? But people used to take sermons from particular pastors and they would put them to music and they called them sermon jams. You guys, you're old, Kevin. Yeah, I guess so. Right? And there was this one particular one done by uh, Pastor John Piper, right, who was one of the main founders along with Louis Giglio and those guys at the Passion Conference. And one, one particular time when he was preaching, he was preaching about something called the prosperity gospel. And for those of you guys that know John Piper, like, brilliant writer, loves God, theologian, in my opinion, not like the most interesting guy to like listen to. Um, like he, he was influenced heavily by a Puritan guy by the name of Jonathan Edwards, who, and Jonathan Edwards' belief was that when you preached, you talked like this the entire time and you never changed your inflection or anything because you only allowed the word of God to do the work and you never emoted, you never showed emotion, you just talked like this the entire time. Some of you guys are like, oh my gosh, Kevin, you would die if you had to do that. Yes. <laughs> I break every public speaking rule that has ever existed every time I preach a sermon here at Aletheia Church. And so, listen to probably at this point in my life like a hundred sermons from John Piper, and this is the one where he gets the most passionate. And, and the reason why I love it so much is he, he's talking about the prosperity gospel. And he's like, look, the prosperity gospel is being exported from the U.S. into Africa and Asia and South America. And what we're telling people is, if you believe and trust Jesus, you'll have all the food you ever need, need, and you'll have the car you want, and you'll have the life you want, and you'll have the house you want. And we're peddling that as the gospel. And he drops this line. When has Jesus ever looked beautiful because you drive a BMW? Yeah, I'll follow Jesus. If I get a free BMW, I'll follow Jesus. He says, that's not the gospel, it's idolatry. He says, the gospel is when you're in a car accident. Your daughter's thrown out the windshield of a car and you stand there over top of her and you lean down and you hold her lifeless body and you say, I have no idea how I'm going to get through this. This hurts deeper than anything I've ever possibly imagined pain could feel. But God is my portion. He is my inheritance. He works all things to my good. I know I can trust him. That's when God looks glorious. And guys, I can tell you as a follower of Jesus, the times when my affections have been most stirred for God is not in my wealth or my prosperity or when things are going well, but in the midst of deep 
suffering and pain. I can also tell you this. Every time I, I have suffered or my family has suffered, God has used those as opportunities to witness to those who did not know him. Because when you love God, when it doesn't make any sense, people start asking questions. And that's exactly what Saul's life becomes. Because it's a testimony to the glory of God. If your life is changed by the grace and love of God, it's one, an evidence of God's work in you that you are saved, but it is also evidence to others around you that Jesus is who he really said he was and that he's really changing you and worthy of their love, glory, and worship. And so we've seen what Saul believes before Jesus We've seen what he believes about Jesus now. We see how Saul's life has moved from prominence and power to suffering and persecuted. And then we ask this fourth question that's a piece of Saul's testimony. Why would you still follow Jesus if that's what you're signing up for? I want you to look at verse 31 of Acts chapter 9 with me. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Paul and the early church in the midst of severe and extreme persecution communicate to us this reality. They're being built up. That means there's community and they're encouraging one another. They're walking in fear of the Lord, meaning they love God more, not less. They're comforted by the Holy Spirit. That means in the midst of everything in their lives being completely and utterly chaotic around them, the Holy Spirit meets them and gives them a peace, as Paul describes later on in one of his epistles, a peace that goes beyond understanding. Sometimes, right, as Christians, the world around us is complete chaos, and someone asks us how we're doing, we're like, you know, I should be doing really bad right now, but I'm just not. Because God's got this. I don't know exactly what that means, but I know he's got it. I know he's got it taken care of. And then we see that the church is multiplying and growing. Guys, if we experience life change and suffer for Jesus the way that we see Paul and the church suffer here in Acts, I can assure you of this. We will get to experience many of the things that the church gets to experience here in verse 31. Peace, love, comfort, growth. Might look different, might not look exactly the same, but we will see those things. And man, how beautiful that might be. So here's, here's how I want to invite you guys to respond to the testimony of Saul and the early church for that matter because his testimony is not the only one on display for us here in the book of Acts. 
I want you to think through those four questions. Right, hopefully you had a chance to write them down. What was, what was my life like before believing in Jesus? Maybe, maybe you don't believe in Jesus and you still need to answer that question. What is, what is, what is my life like? Who, who am I worshiping? What is my life centered around? How has your view of Jesus changed? What has your life looked like since following Jesus and why do you still follow him? In gospel community this week, if you are in gospel community, you're going to be answering those questions in little breakout groups because I, because I think like one of my main goals for you guys as a church is that we would become a church that testifies to the glory of what God has done in our lives consistently. As much as I love apologetics and as much as I love logic and reasoning, sometimes the best way to testify to somebody about the reality of who Jesus is is your own life and what he's done in it. And so I want you guys to have the opportunity in community to encourage one another. Because also, guess what? Sometimes it's just great to know someone else's story. I love hearing stories of life change and what Jesus has done in people's lives. It's so encouraging, it's so encouraging to me because guess what? Sometimes, like, if I can just be like, brutally honest with you guys here for a second, being a pastor stinks. Just stinks. It's hard. The hours are never the same. There's always something to be doing. I don't make any money. It just stinks sometimes. And then one of you guys will come up to me, God is, God is just doing something. Pastor Kevin, God is just doing something so big in my life right now. He's just radically transforming my life. And my roommate, he's asking questions. And like I, I, I think he's saved already and just doesn't even know it. And he's coming to my he's coming to my Bible study and like we're, we're studying we're studying John together and it's just it's just awesome. You guys have no idea the amount of encouragement that brings to my heart. How my soul longs to hear about God using you in the lives of others. Because you have a testimony to God's faithfulness to you and how he will be faithful to others. And so you're going to work through these things in gospel community this week together. But I want to give you an opportunity to respond right now as well. What is your life testifying about? If someone were to examine your life right now and look at it, what would they see? What would it be testifying to? Because we are all living testimonies to something. We testify to what we worship. Because, and you cannot escape this because you are a homo sapien. God created man in his image and likeness to have dominion and subdue the earth. And in that, in that subjecting of the earth and working and having dominion over the earth, it was to be done in a way that brought glory and honor and attention to God. That is why God created you. Genesis 1, Genesis 2, go read it if you don't believe me. Meaning, you are, at any given time, giving glory and worship to something. It's how God designed you. You cannot escape it. I don't care if you want to argue with me. You cannot escape it. The question is, is what are you testifying and bringing worship and glory to? Is it the God of self? 
Is it the God of others? Is it the God of money? Is it the God of popularity? Is it the God of success? Is it the God of religion? Is it the God of self-righteousness? Or is it, is it the God and creator of the universe who sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to live, to subject himself to the point of death, death on a cross, so that he might pay for your sins and for mine to be buried and then rise again the third day. What is your life testifying to? If your life is testifying to anything other than Jesus Christ, I can promise you this, it will ultimately be found wanting and empty. It may seem to be going good for a while. It may seem like you have it all together and experience happiness, joy, peace. But as Daniel shared a couple weeks ago with the testimony of his cousin, eventually it gets found out. There is no true joy, peace, comfort apart from God. And it is only found in his son, Jesus Christ. No two testimonies are the same. Not every testimony is dramatic as Saul's, but every testimony is beautiful. I don't care if your testimony is that at the age of three, you heard about Jesus and you gave your life to him right there on that, on that swing out at the playground. By the way, that is a real testimony of a pastor and a friend of mine. He was three years old. He was swinging on his, his swing set outside and his older sister led him to Christ. He's like, man, my testimony is so boring. I'm like, dude, it's awesome. Pray to God my kids have that same testimony. Instead of experiencing all the stupid, empty things that I filled my life with up until the age of 20. And as you see God transform you, you testify to the glory of God. If you're a believer here this morning, know your testimony. It's one of the most powerful tools of evangelism God has given you. And if you are not a believer or a follower of Jesus here this morning, who or what is at the center of your life? If it's you, I gotta be honest with you. I don't care how great you are, you make a really crappy God. I speak from experience because I make a really crappy God too. I'm gonna invite the band back up here. And at Aletheia Church, we have a time to respond every week to, to God's word. And right, we'll turn the lights down. So if somebody can turn the lights down for me, that would be great. We give you the opportunity to respond to what God might be speaking to you. And I, I don't know, maybe it's something I said, maybe it's something the word of God said, maybe it's something that you've been thinking about before you ever even came in here this morning. But this is an opportunity for you to respond to Jesus. To repent of sin and trust in him. If you're a Christian here, repenting of sin and trusting in Jesus I can promise you this will lead to a greater testimony as Jesus changes you, right? The Christian life is a couple of things just over and over again, repentance and faith.
repenting of sin, trusting in Jesus. Repenting of sin, trusting in Jesus until he calls you home. That's a beautiful testimony. If you want to know more about Jesus or if you're struggling with something and you want somebody to pray for you, I asked a few people to be up here in the front and in the back to pray with you. Feel free to go to them. It's completely confidential. They would love to pray with you. And then during that time as well, we offer you the opportunity to come up and take communion. We serve communion every week here at Aletheia Church, and the reason we do is because it's an act of worship. And I say this every time I'm up here. Communion is not designed to be an act of penance where you solemnly come up here and take of the bread and the juice and go back to your seat and, you know, are really, really sad. It's an act of worship because what Jesus did in giving his own flesh and blood for you secured your salvation, and he wants you to take it worshiping him, not feeling terrible. He wants you to glorify in his salvation, not sadly and solemnly cry about your sin because you are no longer enslaved to it if you are in Christ. You are free. So I'd encourage you to sit there, reflect, repent of any sin, then come up here and freely take right the elements. And then sit there and sing, worship, pray, whatever you want to do, but please respond. And then go forward this week, understanding that your life is a testimony declaring something. May it be to the glory of God, Jesus, your King and Savior. Will you bow your heads and pray that God make that, might make that a reality for us? For those of you guys that are praying with others, will you go ahead and come to the front or the back? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the testimony of Saul Thank you that his life was radically transformed and glorified your name. God, give us a testimony that declares the beauty of who you are and how you have transformed us. Help us to honor you as God. Help us to suffer well and help us to build one another up and testify to your glory. And God, may it be said of us, those people love Jesus. We don't know much else about them, but man, do they love Jesus. Help us to do that for your glory, and I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.